I haven't seen a single thing that qualifies as obscene that has been complained about in the school libraries of Texas because it's not obscene. Yeah, it I've, is, however, educationally unsuitable and sexually inappropriate for minors and disseminating it. If you've got a teaching license, you're violating the terms of your teaching license by disseminating it to children yeah. in the schools and you are subject to discipline. So this is the pressure point. This is the jugular vein. If you wanna stop this from happening, complain about the material, violating standard 3.9, make an educator misconduct complaint to the TEA. They have authority to enforce the educator's code of ethics. And if there was an education commissioner who felt like cleaning up the pornification of the schools, he would act on it. Yeah. The question is whether Mike Morath is that education commissioner. Welcome to the Eans Parents United podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Silva. Join me for meaningful conversations and timely information about Eans School District, its past, present, and where we all hope, for the good of our children, it's heading. Welcome to our episode today. We are going to focus specifically on parental rights and parental rights from a legal perspective. I have a gentleman named Stuart Bagish on the program today. He's 33 years now experience as a lawyer, admitted to practice in Texas, California, and Florida. His experience includes uh, criminal prosecution and defense, First Amendment law, civil litigation trials, education law, law, administrative enforcement law, you name it. But nationally, what's interesting about him is he was recognized early in his career for the successful prosecution of an obscenity defendant who was convicted and became the only cartoonist in U.S. history jailed for the crime of obscenity, a decision that was appealed all the way to the Supreme Court and ultimately upheld. This happened back in 1994, and it is still the only time such a legal feat has been accomplished. Specifically, I invited Mr. Baggish because he's also worked on the legal team at the Texas Education Agency, at least for a handful of years, four or five years. He knows the inside baseball at the TEA. In 2016, he led the biggest case in Texas history, which successfully removed and replaced the entire board of trustees of the El Paso Independent School District. Under his leadership, their trial resulted in the suspension and revocation of teaching licenses held by superintendents and principals involved in a massive district-wide assessment cheating scheme. Mr. Bagish is now in the private practice here in Travis County, representing parents, students, teachers with claims against various school districts statewide. To say the least, business is very, very good for Mr. Bagish these days. He joins us today on the Eans Parents Unite podcast to talk about parental rights in a way I don't think you'll ever heard them explained before. So thank you for being here and enjoy the program. All right, Mr. Bagish, thank you for being here and joining us on Eans Parents Unite. You're welcome. Thank you for having yeah. me. Um, I've been looking forward to this episode. Um, one of our standing commitments when we created the podcast was to really talk about parental rights. And um, over these last two seasons, I've had an opportunity to talk to 
educators uh, that have a sense of what parental rights are. I've had parents talk about what they think parental rights are. And um, and I've actually talked to elected officials about what they think uh, parental rights are. So you, as a legal expert, I'm, I think that talking to you today is going to close the loop on really what parental rights are from an objective standpoint. And so I thought I would ask the first question here is I'd like you to explain to me in local parentis, what is this? In local parentis is uh, Latin for in the shoes of the parents or in the parents' place. And it's a doctrine that was devised in common law by the English courts prior to uh, uh, the United States even existing. Um, and it's a doctrine that recognizes the right of an institution to act on behalf of children mm -hmm. because children lack contractual capacity and they also lack standing before the law. Their parents act in the best interests of the children because children are not in a position to be making significant decisions that may alter their lives all for themselves. The common law courts going, going back eons recognize that, no, the parents are the ones who mm. should be acting on behalf. And there are certain situations where the child is away from the parents mm -hmm. back in the, the English 17th century when, when kids would be working yeah. for somebody that the parents had contracted with to provide the child's labor services. And the, um, the, the issue was, you know, who has authority to uh, make decisions on behalf of the child? And they created the doctrine of in loco parentis so that when someone else has physical custody of a child, does that person have authority to act on the child's behalf or does that authority remain with the parents? And in the United States, it has been decided as a matter of law that the United States Supreme Court has articulated that when a school has custody, physical custody of a child, they're acting in loco parentis, meaning mm -hmm. they stand in the shoes of the parent for all purposes, unless the law contains a specific exception to that rule. And that means when the kids are at school, the school can make decisions for the kid. Yeah. Now, there are innumerable exceptions to this, but the presumption is unless you find an exception, the school can make the decision yeah. on the kid's behalf. I was under the impression that if my son or daughter went to a counselor and, um, you know, they shared with them some calamitous uh, information, you know, maybe, God forbid, they wanted to hurt themselves or something like that. I was under the impression that that information, the school would be obligated to tell me uh, the child spoke to them about. Is that true? Not if it is simply an oral communication. If it is recorded in some documentary form, and there are certain subjects about which, if it is reported, they have to generate a document for it. Mm. If there is a document that is generated for it, the parent has a right to obtain that document. If you ask for it. If you ask for it. And that's under the, uh, the Parents' Bill of Rights, which is Chapter 26 of the Texas Education Code. And you're entitled to the entire permanent student record which is but, everything that's in there. But that's the twist. So I would think as a parent and the school acting in my behalf that if something like that came up, 
that the school would contact me. Now, but what you're saying is that technically the school doesn't have to. They, well, I'm going to first correct you. The, the, the school isn't acting on your behalf as a parent. They are acting with your authority. Gotcha. They are not acting as if you are their client. And that is one of the core issues mm. that we have with the school district is that parents pay the taxes that support the school district, but the school district is acting as if they are the parent exercising a parent's authority to make decisions over children. And because they're standing there with parental authority, they can and do exclude parents when decisions okay. are being made on the spot yeah. for something that has an exigent circumstance. A decision has to be made right then and there. They make the decision with the same authority that a parent on the scene Understood. would have. Even though technically the school in this example wouldn't have to say something to us. If it was written, I could find out about it, but I'd still have to ask. You right? do have to ask. It could, it is, it could live there. I could. My child yeah. could be going again and again to the counselor, and it could be written and documented and live in their file, and I might not ever know about it unless I asked for it, or the school themselves had a policy or the grace to obviously reach out and yeah. talk to me about it, which, yeah. is, which is the predominant, you know, I would expect them to. These are nice general these are nice people. I would expect them to, but you're saying they don't necessarily have to. Statutorily no. Okay. Not state law does not contain a mandate that any information that is acquired from a student that might be of a parent's concern has to be communicated to the parent. Gotcha. That may be the rule when you have a babysitter. It's not the rule when you have teachers. Gotcha. So, first um uh, piece of wisdom is uh, you you do have to occasionally look at these records um, unless you want to just depend on the, the good grace and the policy of the school that you're with, which all of us have tended to uh, rely on for a long time, right? Yeah, there's a lot of assumptions that people are making about how public education services are delivered. Yeah. And there's a presumption that it's being delivered in the child's best interest. And what we have seen since the summer of 2020 is that the opposite is being yeah. done. And this is new. Yeah. And so let's get into a little bit of that because there's a lot of things, a lot of controversial topics, a lot of content that is finding its way uh, into our children through the schools. And, um, uh, you know, there was a point in time where the schools were defending children, abjectly defending children from outside corrupting influences. But to today, it doesn't always seem that's the case. And in some respects, I think you'll argue that the school is actually um, delivering um, this content to the kids that they necessarily should not be doing. Yeah. In the past, it has always been the school acting in local parentis in order to protect the child from corruption. Mm -hmm from exposure to, you know, deviancy and and any type of, of contact, because once a kid is exposed to something, they're going to latch onto it and send, that sends the kid down a track that you want to avoid altogether. Because it's, it's coming from a teacher and there's a certain yeah. level of authority that a child naturally attaches to information that Correct. comes from a teacher. They're going to, they have cred. In the past, the trouble has always been with students at assemblies making statements or, or um, showing things on a screen to a, an assembly that 
would lead kids down the wrong path. And in the past, the school has litigated and the Supreme Court has has decided uh, cases involving the school's authority to prohibit that speech. And that has always been the focus of First Amendment case law on the subject. And the Supreme Court has come down very clearly on the school district side, saying that the mm-hmm. school has the authority, acting yeah. in loco parentis, to prevent yeah. uh, this this uh, indecent material from being uh you know, put onto the the, yeah. the kids in a captive audience of students. But what we saw in 2020 was the, the whole structure uh, reoriented itself and realigned. And now it is in a lot of school districts. I represent teachers. I represent parents statewide. And in a lot of locations, it's the school district that is acting as the corrupting influence. Yeah. And the question is, what do you do since they're acting in loco parentis with parental authorities? How do you put the brakes on this yeah. kind of thing? Yeah. You're referring to the Supreme Court decision that came down in 1987, Bethel School District versus Frazier. And the the case, the case there was the plaintiff um, was a the parents of a child who, in a ceremony... Um, communicated things that were that he admitted later were deliberately sexual innuendo and inappropriate content. And to discipline him, the school uh, suspended him for three days, actually only two of the three days, and they pulled him from commencement ceremonies at graduation. And uh, the parents sued that his rights were being violated, free speech, he wasn't getting due process. It was appealed. It made its way all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court sided with the school. Um, absolutely, a school can prevent uh, this type of speech, and, and you, it actually goes a little further than just speech. Yeah, that the school's responsibilities are to protect the kids from. Yeah, I mean, the, the school actually has authority to make decisions of any kind on the parents' behalf, or, or in the parents' stead, um, acting. Uh, with the kids. So um, they have the authority to, because the kids being under the age of of 18, uh, don't have the authority to consent to hear the indecent material. And the school can say, you're not going to be exposed to that. Um, What we saw in 2020, though, was it shifted and it's now the schools that are promulgating and using deviant curriculum, giving library books to kids that contain sexually explicit material and they're consenting on the child's behalf while they have custody of the child when the child is at home the school does not have that authority the parents do when you read this supreme court decision being a layperson i think about some of the indecision that um, our school board and other school boards around the country uh, have been kind of stuck in this purgatory, not making these decisions on what's right and what's wrong, what ought to be in the schools and not be in the school when it comes to this type of material. Um, it It is remarkable when they truly do have the authority uh, to do this. Yeah, they're acting as if they have no authority to say no. 
anybody who comes along with any material. It could be an issue of, you know, penthouse forum mm -hmm. with, you know, erotic letters that are written in seeking advice uh, of, of a sexually explicit nature. And they're acting as if there is, is no impediment under the law to say no. And that's actually the opposite of the truth. Yeah. There is existing law in Texas to prohibit it. And the school board has to, to exercise its discretion. The superintendent has to exercise his discretion to, uh, to see that those laws yeah. are enforced so as to prevent sexually explicit, indecent material from finding its yeah. way to the students because it's a corrupting influence, influence that ends up hijacking the kids' education. Yeah. Believe me, they're not going to be paying any attention to, you know, Newton's laws of physics when the kids are all giggling in the back of the classroom about sexually explicit material that they just got yeah. from the library. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Texas. You worked at the TEA for some four and a half or five years. Well, TEA is, t in, in my opinion, taking a hands-off approach on this. Mm -hmm. There have been parental complaints submitted, and TEA has been rejecting them and asserting an inability to go forward. But what they're not doing is they're not paying attention to the Educator's Code of Ethics, which contains standard 3.9. And this is mandatory rules for everyone who has a teaching license. They are obligated to fulfill these rules at all times, in all places. There is no statute of limitations um, for a violation of the rules. And standard 3.9 prohibits inappropriate communication with a student, and it gives us an example of what qualifies as inappropriate communication, whether the material was sexually explicit. Yeah. So when a teacher violates the educator's code of ethics, TEA has the authority to act as the prosecutor to seek enforcement of these standards and to obtain discipline against an educator's license. Um, yeah. which is something that the teachers don't want to be exposed to. Yeah. But when they're doing this in an aggressive way, which is what's happening in the schools, something has to be done to push back. And standard 3.9 of the Educator's Code of Ethics, subsection uh, 5, is the way to do yeah. it. As When you were an attorney for TEA, uh, I'm sure you experienced lots of teachers and educators and and leaders in the system that violated the code of ethics losing a license is a very expensive uh proposition for a teacher right i mean that's yes, the worst thing it is it's the worst thing that can happen to a teacher because it denies them the ability to earn a living in their chosen profession it's not like a driver's license that you can get no, back or you know or no it's not and and the way that uh licensure for educators works in texas is that Everybody at the school district who's involved in teaching has to have a license. You know, substitute teachers don't have to have uh, an educator certificate, but full-time teachers do. Mm -hmm. So do the principals. So do the superintendents. Mm -hmm. They all have uh, uh, educator certificates issued by the State Board for Educator Certification. And if you threaten their licensure, they're going to stop doing 
what it is that exposed them to that threat. That's like a complaint against an attorney, for example, that would require them to answer to the state bar of Texas. Mm -hmm. You don't threaten a lawyer's bar license unless you've got good grounds to do it because they perceive that as the end of their career. Mm -hmm. And that's something that they take seriously. Mm -hmm. So if this material is something that is being rolled out to students based on suggestions from the American Library Association, well, first of all, the American Library Association does not promulgate the law. It provides recommendations. And sometimes those recommendations, particularly when they're political, um, they conflict with state law. And state law has to be abided by because standard 1.7 of the Educator's Code of Ethics reads, and I'll tell it to you in its entirety, it says, the educator shall comply with state regulations, written local school board policies, and other state and federal laws, period. That's it. And that means there are no exceptions to it. You have to follow state and federal education law at all times. So when the American Library Association says start pornifying the school library, start pornifying um, the school curriculum, you've got to look at standard 3.9 that prohibits inappropriate communication with a student because you hand a student a book in the library, you're communicating the content of the book to the student. And if it's sexually explicit, you're violating or potentially violating standard 3.9. Mm -hmm. The issue with Texas Education Agency, however, is that they have been taking a hands-off approach to things. So when parents come complaining about books, saying this is sexually indecent, a librarian gave it to my kid. Can you do anything about it? And they have been declining to lift a finger. Yeah. They have the authority to step in. They just haven't been exercising it. Yeah. You know, in addition to the things we're dealing with today around, obviously, library books and this type of content, we also have these other matters that are finding their way uh, into the school, penetrating the minds of the children. Seems like we have a an epidemic all of a sudden of gender dysphoria. We have a lot of discussion uh, about sexual orientation. Of course, we've mentioned the library books. Um you know, racism is a is a, a big deal. The discussion about racism. Uh, we've got DEI programs to combat the apparent racism that's in our school district. We even have children that are pretending to be dogs, cats, farm animals. Um, these types of things. You know, like what what the hell is going on here? The school has to be careful when it's well, doing that and taking action because. There is a specific provision, Texas Education Code Section 28.0022, prohibits teaching that one sex is better than the other, one sex is worse than the other, and also that one race is better or worse than another. So going out in, in the direction of DEI and shaming students because they're white, treating them as if they carry all of the responsibility for, you know, uh, uh, the misdeeds of history long before the, the, the student was even born, um, that is an action that is discriminatory against the student in violation 
of Education Code Section 28.0022. And when you violate that statute, you're violating Standard 1.7 of the Educator's Code of Ethics, and you are subject to discipline against your teaching license for doing that. Let's represent the parent that does have a child that believes they're gender dysphoric, or maybe they are, or they think, you know, I don't want to say sound like I'm making fun of it, but they think they're an animal or a cat or something like this. Does a parent have with a child that has these experiences and maybe believes they are misgendered, uh, do they have a right to send their child to school and expect that the entire institution and the staff accommodate this behavior when it's whether it's clinically diagnosed or it's just a fantastical um, imagination of the child? No, they don't. Um, what the teachers who are confronted with this, this kind of situation can do is they are always standing on solid ground when they refer to the child by the name that is on the child's permanent student record. If the child is enrolled in the school district, um, there's a name under which the mm -hmm. child is enrolled. And use the name that is in the permanent student record. You are never uh, required to use any name other than that mm -hmm. to refer to the child. This what is... we've got is a is a weird situation where districts are acting as proponents for the the children taking bizarre positions. Yeah. And that's where I've seen the greatest level of discord mm -hmm. where parents are saying this has to stop. You've got to focus on the curriculum. You have a limited amount of time to educate my my kid, yeah. and you're wasting it on this. If the child has developmental problems of this nature, suddenly your son is claiming that he is really your daughter. That's a significant development that you would expect to be reflected in some school documentation. Yeah. And that is the sort of thing that gives rise to a lot of the controversy that we're seeing in the schools yeah. Yeah. where there's a disagreement. What do we call this kid? Yeah. And always go back to what is the name on the permanent student yeah. record for that child. Yeah, I had a, a parent uh, contact me, not from our district, to be fair. And her son, a sixth grader, had a uh, girl in his class that wanted to be referred to as a boy and change the pronouns and he couldn't get it straight you know he always continually to refer to her as a female and the school wrote uh the parent a very long letter saying if he doesn't get his act together he's going to be suspended he must refer well i would to, love to hear from that parent yeah, because well, i would love to represent them if the district takes any action against them for that because no. that is you cannot compel somebody to speak in a way that they do not want to speak. Yeah. If you're a parent of a child, in the case of this uh, mother, your child does not have to respond to this. No. Not at all. And I, I didn't think, I, I mean, I was like, what universe are we in right now that we're even sitting here uh, talking about this? It's bizarro world. It, it is. Um, you know, I've actually... Uh, looked into some, you know, I read a lot about this stuff and there's more and more uh, credible folks coming forward that aren't afraid to touch this electric third rail because it's sort of an electric third rail in our society. The idea that, you know, I'm sitting here kind of questioning whether a, whether a boy thinks he's a girl or whether they think they're a dog. And I'm sure there are listeners going, you know, you 
terrible person, Aaron. You're you're doubting what a child might think they are, and you're not uh, sympathetic or empathetic, whatever it might be. But there are, um, and then you know, wanting to cancel you. But there are people out there now that are saying that this, what's going on with the kids, is it's really more of a power exchange, almost a fetish, that the children are flipping the power uh, structure, and because they know they can get response out of adults and certainly adults at schools who are empathetic to responding to this, that they're getting uh, power that they're not able to get somewhere else. And that's why they're doing it. That's why we have an epidemic of people suddenly that are gender dysphoric. Yeah. If you want more of something, pay for it. And uh, that's yeah. what's happening. Resources are being diverted into this and away from delivery of the curriculum, the legitimate educational curriculum. And the kids have a sense when they're in, in school, depending on how they approach their school experience, some feel like school is the best thing in their life. Yeah. Some feel like it's awful. And the ones who tend to feel like it's awful oftentimes will act out and try to adjust the the power structure under which they live on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, basically from the time they wake up until the time they come home from school. They're subject to the whims and caprices of the school authorities. The teacher is an authority figure over them. And when they get a sense that they can achieve some power over the teachers and make the teachers jump through a hoop, they yeah. use that power. Sure. I mean, they, they kids are masterful at this. They do it at home. They do it anywhere they can. Yeah. I, I look at the clinical literature and really read a lot of stuff that's out there. And the general sense is that the amount of people in a in any population that are gender dysphoric is the two stats I see is it's 0.0004% of the population or somewhere between one in 30,000 and one in 150,000. And so if you were to add that up, the entire population of the U.S., 320, 330 million, there should be about 65,000 people that are suffering from this terrible thing. But you turn on the TV and you think, um, you know, one out of five are yeah. experiencing this and it's just like rampant. So I personally think it's a fad. Um, and I agree, uh, it, sh it should have no place in, in school unless it's something that's, you know, really medically yeah. a matter. If, if it's an actual uh, medical problem that has been diagnosed, then you deal with it. But just because Johnny feels like Jane today is not a reason for everybody else to jump through the hoops to play yeah. along with that delusion. Yeah, they don't need to do it morally, ethically, or technically under the statute of law. They don't need to do it. Yeah, legally, it's not required. It's not required. Now, um, I have to admit to you on a previous episode that I talked about library books, um, in my naivete, in my ignorance, I referred to the library books we don't like or the ones that are obscene. And you have uh, educated me very well Aaron, and for parents, stop using the term obscene. Why is the word obscene the wrong thing to use when you're when you're putting forward an argument as to why you don't think a, a book or a piece of educational content or whatever ought to be in schools? Educate us on why that's the wrong word to use. Well, because obscenity is outside the First Amendment. The First Amendment does not protect obscenity because obscenity is not speech. Obscenity may take the form of words and images, but because of the standard that the U.S. Supreme Court has laid out for judging 
what qualifies as obscenity, which is a standard that is almost impossibly hard to meet. Almost nothing satisfies the standard of obscenity. As soon as you refer to something as being obscene, you have just invoked probably the most difficult standard under the law to satisfy. And you have chosen to play on a battleground where you're going to lose. Mm -hmm. um, the material that I have seen, um, as sexually explicit as it is, it is not obscene. But that doesn't mean that it should go to kids. Obscenity is illegal. It is contraband for everybody, whether they're an adult or a child. It is illegal to sell it. It is illegal to advertise. It is illegal to send it. If you put it in the mail or in uh, uh, a common carrier like FedEx, you're violating federal law. Mm -hmm. And you are now subject to criminal prosecution and a potential jail sentence for doing that. That's not what we're talking about with objectionable library materials. Yeah. We are looking at, it with the library materials, stuff that is sexually inappropriate for minors. Or educationally unsuitable. Yeah. Educationally unsuitable material or sexually inappropriate material is the correct terminology because it invokes the standard that is in the educator's code of ethics. But when you're saying, well, it's obscene, you are doing exactly what the left wants you to do, which is to choose their battleground where yeah. they have innumerable weapons yeah. to defend the material and you're gonna lose. Yeah. I'll tell you what the standard is. It's the standard from the case of Miller versus California, which is from 1973, and it remains the applicable standard for obscenity. The first element, and you've got to prove all three of these elements, and sure, because sure. it's criminal, it has to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. The first standard is that the material is patently offensive according to contemporary community standards, which means right here, right now. It means it's, it's obscene and it's patently uh, offensive. Right here, right now, 10 years from now, it may no longer be obscene because tastes change. Yeah. The second element is that it has to appeal primarily to a prurient interest in sex, which means a shameful, lustful, or morbid interest in sex. It means that it gets you horny, and you're ashamed that it gets you horny because it's disgusting. That's what prurient yeah, means. Yeah, that's what prurient means. And, you know, there are there was an obscenity case involving a genre of uh, of of porn called stomp videos where women wearing stiletto heels would stomp live chicks to death. And that was determined to be obscene because it appealed primarily to a shameful, lustful or morbid interest in sex. That is, it, the people who were made horny by looking at this stuff were really ashamed about they, it yeah. because it's disgusting. Yeah. So that's the second element, and mm. that's a pretty hard element to meet. And then the third element is the most difficult by far. It is that the material taken as a whole lacks any and all serious literary, artistic, political, and scientific value. Because it's taken as a whole, it means if you stick a quote from Benjamin Franklin into Hustler magazine, suddenly it's not obscene. Mm. And this is where most of the folks run afoul because the material that they bring 
to a school district board meeting and read provisions where they're being bleeped on YouTube because it's indecent and it violates terms for the Internet to broadcast, um, they say, well, it's 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 not obscene. So we're not going to do anything about it because you have quoted something out of context that, yes, it is sexually explicit. But the rest of the book has redeeming value and obscene material has to be utterly bereft of redeeming content. It means there's nothing in it that serves any useful purpose. Otherwise, it would be speech and protected by the First Amendment because it's not. It is an act, an act of assault on the senses that takes the form of words and images, and it's not protected. But because... This is such a difficult standard to satisfy. I'm telling you right now, I haven't seen a single thing that qualifies as obscene that has been complained about in the school libraries of Texas because it's not obscene. It is, however, educationally unsuitable and sexually inappropriate for minors and disseminating it. If you've got a teaching license, you're violating the terms of your teaching license by disseminating it to children yeah. in the schools and you are subject to discipline. So this is the pressure point. This is the jugular vein. If you want to stop this from happening, complain about the material, violating standard 3.9, make an educator misconduct complaint to the TEA. They have authority to enforce the Educator's Code of Ethics. And if there was an education commissioner who felt like cleaning up the pornification of the schools, he would act on it. The question is whether Mike Morath is that education commissioner. I promise you, I will never use the word obscene again to describe what I find in these books or what's in the thing. So I, you'll never hear me say that again. I'm yeah, fun. unless it's unless it's stomp videos, no, stop that's, talking about no. it as obscenity. It's no. sexually inappropriate yeah. material for minors. No, 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 and none of that, um, to the credit of the school, is happening in the school. So let's talk a little bit more about books. Authors have a right to write a book. Publishers have rights to publish them. But do all books or any books have a right to live in our school libraries? No, they don't. Yeah. You know, I, I believe that our district is trying to address the library book problems. We've talked about it a lot here on the on the program. Um, address them the best way that they can. Uh, the leadership uh, under Dr. Arnett have enacted some new administrative procedures uh, that I would say gently isolate books with mature and young adult material. But but why do you think it is so hard for a school just to throw these damn books out. You know, if, if the statutes are there, if the code of conduct is there, if we have Supreme Court decisions that are there, what is making it so hard for the, you know, our board of trustees or any district board of trustees to just do the right thing and do the legal thing? What is it? Well, it's it's activism. There's a movement afoot, and it's happening nationwide, to pornify education. Mm-hmm. And the library is the place where they are starting. A librarian need not have an educator certificate from the State Board for Educator Certification. If they do, they're subject to discipline against their license. But if they don't, then they're not. And librarians are acting 
at the behest of guidance or urgency that they get from uh, the American Library Association that is pushing this curriculum and these materials into libraries, not just school libraries, but, but community libraries as well, as a political movement. They're pushing this as one of their primary agenda items. Um, but where the, the librarians are acting in that manner, um, in their selection of books to put in the school library, they feel like they've got the backing of the American Library Association. Um, and oftentimes the district, it may be the superintendent, it may be the principal, um, whomever is, is dealing with the library, and oftentimes they will have the librarian tell them, well, the ALA has recommended this book, and so we're going to put it on the shelf. And it comes down to a question of, do we want to keep our librarian or not? Yeah. Um, because there's a human resources issue there. But where the, where the librarian is being aggressive, the school is always standing on solid ground by reminding the librarian that if it doesn't serve the legitimate educational mission of a free and appropriate public education, which is otherwise known as FAPE, F-A-P-E. Free and public education. Free and appropriate. And appropriate. Free and appropriate public, public education. education. Excuse me. If they are hijacking the kids' education, the question is, is it appropriate? Yeah. I, I have an understanding that some educators believe that they have a so-called exemption to teach or provide this type of material to minor students because it's being delivered in an educational setting. You know, in the collegiate system, when they're teaching adults, um, there are some topics. If you're going to, you know, teach a, um, a criminal law student on what obscenity looks like, yeah. they're going to have to show snuff films yeah. or, 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 you know, these types of things. I've, I've always understood that's where the exemption actually is. For that type of material taught to adults, but that exemption does not exist for a teacher putting content in front of a minor. Well, what it establishes is there's an exception to the criminal statutes, the penal code statutes for obscenity, for uses of the material in an educational session, uh, setting. What you're doing doesn't qualify as criminal obscenity, but there is no legal exception that entitles a teacher or a librarian in a Texas public school to disseminate obscenity or sexually indecent material to a student. That is not accepted. That is, in fact, prohibited by Standard 3.9 mm -hmm. of the Educator's Code of Ethics. Yeah. Well, if, if this statute exists, why are our lawmakers at the Statehouse making more laws to put on top of the laws that already exist. I mean, what difference is that going to make? Well, I mean, no one's following these laws. To, to try to take away some of the confusion, I think, uh -huh. because um, the, the, the fact of the matter is librarians are taking legal advice from sources that are really not reliable, legally speaking. Mm -hmm. um, and they feel like they can, you know, disseminate sexually indecent material to uh, sexually explicit material to students um, when, in fact, it's prohibited. Mm -hmm. And they feel like they're standing on solid ground. And I think the legislature is trying to let them know, no, you, you don't have that. Now, I know you represent 
plenty of parents. Um, I also represent teachers. I was just going to ask you, there's certainly are, um, we have amazing teachers here in the district, no question about it. And I, I know I've been contacted by a good number of teachers quietly, privately that, um, you know, express their dismay that they're working under these conditions and, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to raise their hand because they're afraid of their job, losing their job and these types of things. What are teachers bringing to you? What do you, what kind of issues are you representing for teachers? Um, and, and if there's a teacher listening and they need help, what can they do? Well, teachers, um, have come to me with instances where they've been, pressured into referring to a male student as as she or a, a female student as a he or him. There have been instances where districts have been trying to pressure teachers into including in their curriculum for a class um, woke agenda items discussing things like toxic masculinity and mm-hmm. and um you know, basically anti-white discrimination is something DEI mm. um, is seeking to vilify and and make uh, uh, students feel ashamed of who they are because of their skin color as if they're responsible mm-hmm. um, for all of the crimes of white people throughout history. And that's actually statutorily prohibited. But to- they're coming to you. They're coming to me to find out what their rights are and to see to it that their rights are respected by the school district that employs well, them. Well, what do they do about it? And how do they how do they, um, you know, express their rights without fear of losing their job? Well, Cause, uh, I mean, you can't you can't sue your employer. I mean, on, you can, but on a great peril on on a, on a you know, on a case by case basis, yeah, it, just, it, it, it's, it's usually resolved um, with a letter by the teacher's attorney. Gotcha. representing them, informing the school district. That may be the position, you know, I understand your position as you've asserted it, but these are my clients' rights and they must be respected at all times. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot that can be done to protect teachers who are, you know, under the heel and, and being pressured. They're getting it from all sides. And it's really unfair because there are a lot of really good and effective teachers who are, are virtuous, who want to use the school day to teach the students the curriculum that's defined by the Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills. And the standards that are in the Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills are copious. It's very long. It's Mm -hmm. very detailed. And you have only 183 days a year to deliver it. And that is a task. That requires a lot of focus. And when you add something like this on top, some kind of social political agenda item, for them to pour all of this time and attention into, it ends up hijacking the process. And what you end up with is the students getting short shrift. The school year comes to an end, and they have left off a bunch of curricular items that were never covered yeah. in class. Let me take the contrarian view. So what's the big damn deal? I mean, uh, what's wrong with the school educating children about what it means to be black, white, yellow, orange, or those perspectives, no matter what color you are from other colors' views? What's wrong with teaching kids to understand all the different types of sexual orientation. Because 
Um, you know, parents argue, I've had parents on this podcast that argue it's going to help them grow up and be more diverse, more accepting of all types of people, cultures, more empathetic. Uh, what's wrong with exposing kids to, you know, what we're talking about here, like old fuddies? It's sexually inappropriate material in a library book. I mean, they can get this crap on the Internet or their iPhone any day of the week. And um, in a way, the more they know about sex, the more educated they are about sex. Maybe that increases the likelihood that they won't get pregnant or they don't won't be promiscuous. I mean, isn't isn't that good in a way that the school is now a conduit for this stuff? Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. It all depends on, first of all, how it's being done, the extent to which it is being done and the extent to which the responsibility for delivering the curriculum as defined by the TEKS, um, the extent to which that is suffering as a result of the diversion of resources. The school is there to teach the TEKS. Mm -hmm. Those are the curricular requirements. Um, the parents have the responsibility to make their children good citizens. And there's a difference between the two. And each should stick to their own respective field. The, the, the parents should not be intimately involved in the day-to-day -day, uh, minutiae of how the teaks are being delivered to the yeah. students. And That's the school, school. Yeah. should not be getting involved in the intimate details about how interpersonal relations should be um, managed by the student as an individual yeah. and citizen. Let's say you're in a situation where you need remedy and you and you as a parent want to take steps uh, that uh, you feel you need uh, to protect your rights and the right of your child. There's a grievance process that you should go through. Now, I know there's two levels. Can you first, you know, bifurcate in our minds? Where's the first place you should always start if you have a, if you feel you have a legitimate complaint against a teacher, an educator, a leader? that violates either the Texas Educative Code, Education Code, or they're doing something that shouldn't be gone in TICS. Where do you start? Yeah, the place to start is with a complaint to the district, and it should be made within 10 days of the incident that triggered the complaint. Because okay. under school board policy, um, uh, it, it, it may vary from district <laughs> to district, but most school districts use the the board policies that are promulgated by the Texas Association of School Boards and the standard language is 10 days for a complaint. If you wait more than 10 days, they say, sorry, can't do anything for you. Mm -hmm. um, when you make a complaint to the district, the school board policy requires that they treat that complaint um, uh, as, as a basis for, at the very least, investigation and maybe a conference on so the you, subject. So you don't... If you have a problem with a teacher, you don't complain to the principal. You go right to the district level. Well, if if, if you're don't you complain to the teacher first? I mean, you might want to and try to work it, it out civilly, you know, it, parent to teacher. Well, initially, you know, a, a parent has a right to to communicate with the teacher, and the teacher will generally email you back um, if you you have a complaint. Try that first. Yeah, but keep in mind that the ten day clock has already started ticking. Even if you're communicating yeah. with the teacher, you're burning if daylight. That, yeah, and mm. if that doesn't work. Within 10 days, you've got to file your complaint with the district 
And then there are three levels of, of review that the district has. There's level one, which is um, you meet with the leadership of the school, which is, you know, the principal and the assistant principal um, with authority to correct the is, problem. Is the teacher generally present? The general it? would or they would ordinarily communicate with the teacher the nature of the complaint and hear from the teacher, the teacher's side of the story. Um and then if that doesn't work, there's level two, which is to the superintendent. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get relief at level one, you've got to file your, your appeal um, to the district. Again, it varies from district to district. It's either 10 days, 15 days, 20 days, or 30 days, but you've got a limited amount of time. Right. After level two is level three, which is a hearing by the school board. Mm -hmm. um, and that, again, if you don't get relief at level two with the superintendent, you can appeal it to the school board for level three. And if you don't get relief there, then you can go to TEA with your complaint. There is a big exception. TEA has authority to hear anything and to investigate and take action. Allegations of educator misconduct, which is violating the educator's code of ethics. Yeah. That does not require going to the district first, but it does help if you went through the local district process first and you couldn't find relief because then you can tell TEA they didn't do anything about it. They saw no problem with so, it. And then if you don't get relief from, from the district, TEA can take disciplinary action against an educator's license to enforce the rules. And then, and only after that, can you go into court? Because to get into court where you get to file a petition for civil relief, and that would be an action for what's called declaratory relief, which is a finding of the court that, yes, the school district violated the law and they are enjoined from continuing this conduct. There's an injunction against them, prohibiting them from doing what they're doing. Yeah. You know, you spent a lot of time up at the TEA. Uh, you probably saw the worst of the worst. Um, how many um, how many teachers lose their license any given year? I mean, I, to me, it sounds like it wouldn't happen very often because there's so there's such a process. Are we talking in the hundreds? Uh, more than a thousand. Um, wow. Yeah. A year. Well, when you say lose their license, that includes suspensions as okay. well. As well. Not because lose their ability to teach. Yeah. There are three levels of penalty for a teacher for, for an action to enforce the rules against their license. There's the letter of reprimand, which is the least severe. And the second level of severity is um, the suspension, um, which means for a period of time, they're not able to participate. Um, as a certified individual in the educational process. The most severe, which is you know known as the death penalty for teachers, is a permanent revocation. And that means for the rest of your life, you lose yeah. your license, and that's the end of your teaching career. Yeah. That is reserved for the worst of the worst. Yeah. The, the thought of having to go to this level, to that length, uh, to get what you want or to get what's right, to have to threaten a teacher's license isn't isn't a pleasant uh, a pleasant thought, and I, you know, I, I have you here not to educate people, and that's what they should do, but this is the process it would take if you if you felt you had to do it, and I think the goal of any time you have a dispute is try to get the try to get it worked out with the teacher, um, you know, be civil, uh, be direct, uh, be kind, but 
parents need to understand that even though there are things the school is not acting on today, there are statutes and you do have rights and there are explicit, clear things that you heard Mr. Baggish today talk about that teachers really need to follow and understand. Yeah, it's it's important to know what the rules are. And I recommend that everybody take a look at the Educator's Code of Ethics. It's Title 19, Section 247.2. As you mentioned, it's only, it's only three or four pages long, and you can read it in one sitting. And it's very simple language. And um, teachers and pa- parents alike need yeah. to be familiar with this. Yeah. Um, I'll have that available uh, to anyone that wants to contact me directly through eanspodcast.com. And you can also contact uh, Stuart Baggish. She represents uh, parents and teachers and their students or children um, all across the state and actually in three states, Florida, Texas, and California. There probably is not a more qualified and astute uh, resource, legal resource about these matters than, than you, Stuart. And I appreciate you being here today and spending the time to get to know me and, and talking about this episode to make sure we come on and did a good a good show for everybody. Thank appreciate you for having much. me. I've really enjoyed yeah. it. Keep up the good work. I will. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Eanes Parents United podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Eanes Kids First, ensuring that Eanes prioritizes our children's well-being honors parental rights, and unites our incredible community. To learn more about our mission or to donate to our cause, please visit us at eanskids.com. That's E-A-N-E-S kids.com. If you would like more information about this podcast, contact me directly or give us any feedback, feel free to visit our website at eanspodcast.com or eansparentsunite.com. Thank you.